0: Hey folks, this is Kevin On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Joey Rinaldi
1: So there I am, 14 years old, peeing blood In front of my whole entire cast and crew of Godspell And for most people You would think that's the worst part of the story
0: that and more. But first, folks, the thestorystudio.org is where you'll find our storytelling school. Many of the story coaches who work for Risk are faculty members at the Story Studio. We teach workshops on storytelling for personal growth, storytelling for the stage, and storytelling for business. And we do custom-tailored corporate workshops for businesses and organizations of all sizes and kinds. If you've been thinking of doing some storytelling training for yourself or for a team you work with find us at thestorystudio.org Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Brian Eno and David Byrne behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Family Values. Three very different stories about families with very different dynamics. And all recorded very recently. Two come from our live show in November, last November at Caveat in New York City. And the last one is a radio-style story. Now, I do have to warn you, the second story, the story right in the middle of the episode by Christiana Hilberg, has a disturbing situation with sexual assault in it. I was totally blown away by Christiana, by the way, a newcomer, first time telling a story. Not only did she share really intimate and difficult stuff very courageously, but the construction of the story, just the, the telling, the putting the story together, just, I was blown away. We're going to start with a very lighthearted story here. This one comes to us from comedian Joey Rinaldi. You can find Joey at his Instagram, the Joey Rinaldi, And this story is an excerpt from his new solo show called Potty Training, which will be making its debut on March 3rd, 2022 at the Vino Theater in Brooklyn, New York. So without further ado, here is Joey Rinaldi now with a story we call potty training.
1: So in this story, I'm 14 years old, and I'm telling my mom that I'm quitting baseball because I'm afraid of the ball, and she does not believe me. She thinks I'm quitting baseball so I'll have more free time to be a degenerate. And at 14 years old, that's accurate because I was a mess when I was 14. I was repeating eighth grade because I was a troublemaker the year before. I just started smoking weed, so my mom was constantly yelling at me for being high all the time. So she thinks the only way I can quit baseball is if I find a new after school activity to do. So because I'm funny and always wanted to be a comedian, we both decide I should audition for the school play. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to be like Adam Sandler... And then I go to audition, and it's a musical Godspell. So I from being Adam Sandler in my mind to being Jesus Christ's backup dancer. (laughs) And I hate going to rehearsal. I don't like going there. I don't fit in. All the theater people think I'm a jock. No one likes me, and I'm bored every single day. And the only time I have fun is during a five-minute break during rehearsal. And during these five-minute breaks, I would just let loose, and that's my time. One time during rehearsal, I saw that there was a bunch of folding chairs lined up from the lip of the stage leading up to this big beanbag prop that we had. And I was watching a lot of American Ninja Warrior at the time, which is a show where people would do obstacle courses. And when I saw this, I was like, that is an obstacle course. And I had a family friend who's a personal trainer who's actually training people to do American Ninja Warrior and he would often mess around with me, but I didn't know he was messing around with me. I thought he was being serious. So when he would say things like, hey, Joey, you could be an American Ninja Warrior, I believed him. So I go to do this obstacle course. I tell everybody in the cast and crew to watch me do this thing. And I go to jump off the stage and run across the folding chairs and then do a flip on the beanbag chair. And you know what happens? I nail it. I did it perfectly. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I get back up to look around and nobody's watching me do it. And so I have a question for you guys. If a middle school student does a poor course stunt and his friends don't see him do it, did he even do it at all? (laughs) So I got back on and I was like, hey, everybody, watch me do this. You don't want to miss this. And now everyone's watching, I have everyone's attention. And this time I go to do it a second time. But this time I land in a split position on top of one of the folding chairs the folding chair folds backwards and it and it crushes my penis. So there I am, 14 years old, peeing blood in front of my whole entire cast and crew of Godspell. And for most people, you would think that's the worst part of the story. <laughs> but for me, the worst part of the story is knowing I have to call my mom because I hate calling my mom Because I kind of traumatized my mom because at this time in my life, I was constantly calling her because I need to go to the hospital, get stitches, or I need to be picked up from school because I'm in trouble, or I'm at the police station. So because of this, my mom just instinctually answers the phone when she sees me calling her like this. Oh my God, are you okay? Where are you? I can come right now. Is everything okay? And I was so mad because on this day, I was justifying that response. So my mom picks me up, takes me to the hospital, and they have to do surgery on me for eight hours. It's like a big surgery. And I wake up to find a catheter in my penis, which if you don't know, it's a tube that connects to your bladder or out your penis to a big urine bag so you can involuntarily urinate. And I ask the surgeon, I'm like, hey, why do I have this catheter? And he explains that when I landed on the chair, I didn't hit my penis. What I hit was my perineum, which you may know it as your taint, your gooch, your grundle. It's like that piece of skin between your balls and your asshole. And he said, I hit it so hard that it made my bladder stop working, and so I need a catheter to pee through. And he didn't know if it was going to last a few weeks or the rest of my life. And he goes on to say that the trauma it takes to recover a bladder injury like this can make your immune system so weak that in the recovery process it could kill you. And I thought, you know what, that would be kind of funny. Because I'd be the first person to die from hitting their taint. They probably wouldn't even call it the taint, the gooch, or the grundle anymore. They'd probably change it to the Rinaldi strip after me. I'd be up there with people like Lou Gehrig who have their own medical terms named after them. And then my mom shouts, but will he be able to have kids? And I was like, mom, did you not hear the part that I could die? And she was like, Joey, you don't understand. You being alive is useless to me if you can't give me grandkids. Because that's how Italian moms like reach nirvana is having grandkids, you know, So the doctor says the only way for me to make a full recovery is I have to be on strict bed rest and I have to be on bed rest and I can't do anything else, which was a bummer because to me, in my mind, I thought I was like Ferris from Ferris Bueller's Day Off where like the rules of society and school and my parents didn't apply to me. I just wanted to gallivant around town with my friends all day, not doing anything. And you can't do those things when you're on bed rest. It felt like I was being sentenced to house arrest, but instead of an ankle bracelet, they shoved the catheter in my penis, which honestly would be a more effective way to do house arrest. <laughs> I'm really nervous about this whole bed rest situation because it meant I'd have to spend time with my mom 24/7, and my mom was always like trying to get me in trouble at this time in my life. So I just was afraid that it was going to just be a lot of lecturing and you know me getting yelled at. But that's wrong. It turns out when your mom thinks you're dying, she becomes your best friend. It was awesome. As soon as I came home from the hospital, she had this spare bedroom that was like made as like a Joey utopia. She had all my video games, DVDs, all my favorite snacks. It was like the perfect place for me. And that's not it. She also became like my social calendar coordinator. Like every morning I'd wake up and she'd be like, Joey? Your friends are coming over to watch the football game with you tonight. Tomorrow, that girl you have a crush on, she's going to come over to give you cookies. And the next day, we're renting all the horror movies from Blockbuster. It was awesome. And I actually felt like very important because all of a sudden, like people cared about me. Everybody from my life was constantly calling me up. Are you okay? If I went to a pizzeria in my town, they'd be like, hey, you're the guy with the broken penis who's going to die. Here's free pizza. <laughs> it was like the closest I've ever felt to being like a celebrity. So I was kind of really enjoying this whole injury process. And the weird thing is, the thing I enjoyed the most about it was actually all the time I got to spend with my mom. We did a lot of fun stuff that summer together. And the best thing we would do is we would watch movies. You would think we'd watch like wholesome family movies with a son and a mom. That's not true. I found out my mom has the same sick personality I have. And we would watch like wedding crashes and American Pie and like Animal House and watching these movies together, I felt like we were really learning like, new things about each other. Like I was learning that my mom is actually funny, and my mom was learning that I am not always an asshole. <laughs> it was awesome. But the thing is, spending too much time with your mom can be a problem. And it was, because there's one thing you're not supposed to do when you have a catheter in your penis— but it's also the only thing you do when you're 14 years old. So I was doing it anyways. And one day, my mom walked in. I scream because I'm horrified. She screams because she's happy. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you smiling? She's like, this is great. Your penis works. Then she was like, I got phone calls to make. I'm like, who are you calling? Next thing I know, she's on the phone with my aunts and my uncles, being like, "Guys, good news! I'm gonna be a grandma after all." <laughs> and then she runs back in my room, and goes, "Joey, get dressed. We're going to the hospital." I'm like, "Why the hospital?" She goes, "Cause if you didn't jerk off, you probably can pee." And I was like, "I don't see the connection." So we go to the hospital. I tell my doctor that I jerked off, and then my doctor, she freaked out. She's like, "You jerking off? That's great news!" I'm like, "This is the most praise I think anyone's ever gotten." <laughs> <laughs> you're jerking off. So she did test on me, and she was right. My mom was right. I, I, I was ready to take the catheter, and they, right there and then, they took the catheter out, and the doctor was like, hey, when you go home, pee. If you can pee, you're 100% better. So I have a jug of water that I'm chugging, and I go home, and like all my friends and family members are just there, And they're like outside my bathroom just shouting out, you can pee, sonny, you can do it. So I had stage fright. It's really hard to pee under those circumstances. So I'm in the bathroom and nothing's coming out. I'm trying, nothing's coming out. And after like an hour, they all give up on me. They all leave one by one. And now it's just me and my mom. We're alone again. And my mom's like, hey, if you can't pee right now, it's okay. The good news is the doctor says you're close to being ready. So if not today, soon you'll make a full recovery. And are you excited that you're going to be a normal person again? And I was thinking a lot when she said that because one part of me felt kind of sad. I was like, oh, no, if I'm a normal person again, that means I won't be special. I won't be important. My friends won't care about me as much anymore. But more importantly, I was nervous that if I was normal again, the first thing I'd want to do is go back to breaking all my parents' rules. And my mom wouldn't be my friend anymore. So I tell my mom, yeah, I'm excited to go back to being normal, but I also want to thank you because not one point during the summer did I ever feel like I was dying because you made every day so much fun. And then I peed my pants. (laughs) My first time peeing in six months was in my pants and my mom did not skip a beat. She was like, don't worry. I won't tell your brothers you did this, and I'll clean your pants right now. (laughs) And I made a full recovery. But I was right. The second, like the first weekend, I was better. I snuck out, went partying, came home at 5 a.m. My mom immediately grounded me. And even though I kept on getting in trouble after that, it never changed the fact that my mom and I remain best friends still to this day today. (laughs) However, hold your applause, because one thing, I still hate calling her, because I'm 26 years old, and still to this day, when I call my mom, she yells, oh my God, are you okay? Where are you, should I come and pick you up right now? And I can't be mad, because I gave her six months of reasons to justify that response. Thank you guys, I'm all day.
0: If I piss a little blood first, please, by all means. Thanks.
4: He's
3: not gonna piss blood in the limo, is he? on. Oh. So I had to wait six long weeks from the time that I turned 18 until I graduated high school and I could leave the town that i had grown up in and move out of my mom's house. I had only been living in Phoenix for seven days when I was on another call with my mom. I am an adult now, I don't live in your house, I can make my own rules, oh my God. You see, I had grown up Mormon, and Mormons have a lot of rules. And my mom wanted me to follow all of these rules still. I needed something to take my mind off of all of this. So I called up a friend, and I was invited to a girl's night. I was welcomed in, met new friends, and shown immediately to the kitchen where there were snacks and a lot of alcohol. Now, remember, I grew up Mormon, so one of the rules was to not even think about alcohol, let alone be in the same room with it. So I sat there, and I held this glass bottle, not knowing what the fuck to do with it, and I was too embarrassed to ask, so I grabbed a glass, and I poured three-quarters vodka, as you do, leaving a splash for Coke. The music was so loud, girls everywhere. I was moving from the front room to the patio, back to the kitchen. And after drink three, it was no longer a girls party. Boys started showing up and I didn't want to lose my buzz. So I made another drink. Still moving back and forth from the front room to the kitchen, to the patio. And I don't know, drink five, drink six. I found myself up against the hall wall like this, right? Leaning, reaching for my friend. I need need to go to bed. She came over, she lifted me up, and she took me to her bedroom, laid me down and said, I'll see you in the morning. Here's a glass of water. My body was jolted awake by water being poured on my vagina. My eyes couldn't open. It felt like there was sandbags on my chest and on my eyes. And I kept saying, get up, sit up, say something. And all I could say was, I'm a virgin. I'm on my period. Probably not like that. I'm a virgin. I'm on my period. I couldn't even talk. I couldn't open my eyes. And the voice back said, it's okay. It'll be okay. I didn't recognize this voice. More water. And then a lot of pain. I couldn't open my eyes still, but I could feel tears streaming down my face. And this happened a few times throughout the night, water followed by pain, still couldn't open my eyes. I was wakened by this really loud buzzing noise, vibrating. I didn't know where I was, tried to open my eyes, still so loud in my ears, rolled off the bed and found my phone. I opened it, missed calls, missed messages. It was my mom. She felt bad about our fight the night before and she was on her way to my house. I had about 45 minutes until she would be there. So I gathered up all of my things, trying to find all my shit, made my way to the bathroom, What the fuck? Mascara running down my face. How are you going to face your mom? How are you going to tell her? You waited your whole life for this? I went to the bathroom, and when I wiped, I was numb. I couldn't feel anything. I made my way out to the front room, and I found my friend. What the fuck happened? And she said, oh my God, I... I didn't know you were a virgin. How could she not know? I was waiting for a missionary. We were supposed to get married and be each other's firsts. She said, did he use a condom? I don't know. So we drove to the nearest Walgreens. She went inside and came back out and said, here, take this. It was plan B. She said, it might make you feel like shit, but it just kind of wipes everything, takes everything out, washes everything out. So I took it and got in my car and started driving back to my apartment. I now had about 20 minutes until my mom was there. I came through the door and immediately told my roommate, oh my gosh, I got drunk for the first time last night and this is what happened. And she said, oh honey, when you drink and you go to parties, that shit just happens. So now the tone was set and I ran upstairs upstairs got in the shower. No soap could wash away the shame and the guilt that I felt, but I just kept washing. I got out. I was standing in front of the mirror. You're worthless. He is never going to want to marry you when he gets home. How are you going to tell your mom? There was a hickey on my neck. I didn't want my mom to see it, so I turned on the curling iron and I ran it back and forth for about 20 seconds. She was a hairdresser so she wouldn't think anything of it. Pretty soon there was a knock on the door. So I ran downstairs, opened the door. Hi mom, ready for girls day? Thank you.
0: This is loma behind me now and we just heard from christiana hilberg christiana was a very first time storyteller sharing that story live at caveat in new york city last november after all these years of doing the show it's still so touching to me especially when first time storytellers are so coachable and work with us and then really take a risk and do the show like that and that was one of those really shining moments i felt you can find christiana on her instagram at christiana underscore Hilberg. and before christiana we heard a little interstitial all about pe- peeing blood by our episode editor jeff barr Folks, over at Patreon.com slash Risk, it means so much to us, both practically and in terms of moral support, to have the generosity of the people who love our show, helping us to keep us thriving. You know, Risk is an unusual show because... Like a show you might hear on NPR, there are radio-style stories with sound design. There's stories told live on stage. There's so many moving parts and so many details to attend to week after week, year after year but we're an independent podcast. We don't have all that financial security of those big corporate production networks. And we have a lot of folks working very hard on the show. So please visit us at patreoncom risk to learn about all the bonus content over there. The latest bonus story is by Annabelle Gerwich, the author of you're leaving when adventures in downward mobility.
2: I haven't played rock, paper, scissors in like 30
0: years. And I can't thinking water. What about water? Isn't there water? So again, find that and so much more bonus content over at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from Jay Roar. Now, you know, (laughs) I think I have to explain that every year when it's the winter holidays, we ask for a ton of winter holiday stories pitches and we get a ton of great ones. And a lot of them are, I just feel like, better suited for ordinary episodes, but part of the effect that ends up happening is that a lot of stories I end up just not thinking of running until January still have like Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever happening in them just not at the forefront of the story not the main thrust of the story so that you know you would include it on a winter holidays episode and this is one of those now you can find Jay at Honesty is not contagious.com. He does a lot of different kinds of writing. He's in the beer. He's in the beer. He's in the band Beer Finger. And this is Jay's second time on the show. Here's Jay now with a story we call Off Topics.
5: In my family, there's a whole list of conversation topics that we try to avoid because they're landmines. And if you step on one, it's going to explode and it's going to ruin the evening for everybody. Case in point, there was a Thanksgiving years and years ago. And I'm sitting around and I'm talking about Shaun of the Dead. And my older brother takes this as his cue to start talking about what he's going to do when the zombie apocalypse happens. And at first, I'm kind of riding his train of thought with him, because I figure this is just a hypothetical fantasy scenario, and those are fun to explore. I'm also used to this line of dialogue with him, because growing up, he was always the kind of person who was sort of... He had the mentality that his future was going to be an 80s action movie, that he was going to be this mercenary Ronin, offshoot of the A-Team, wandering the country and doing good with a gun. So, when he's going off on this, I'm like, oh, this is just an offshoot of his, like, childhood daydreams, you know. But as he's talking about it, it becomes clear that this isn't a fantasy for him. This is a reality. He's not pontificating on, like, you know, hypotheticals. He actually believes that the zombie apocalypse is going to happen at some point in the near future. And so, as he's going off about this, I'm just like, dude, you know that scientifically speaking, zombies don't and cannot exist, and he just looks at me and goes, God can make it possible, and then things just kind of went downhill from there, until we were just shouting at each other, he was like, you don't have any idea what reality is like, that's why you voted for Barack Obama, and I'm just like, I don't know how to respond to that, because clearly rational debate is not going to win me any points here. My family's always been very like intense about their opinions and growing up, I learned to sort of have more control about my passions than the rest of them. But at the same time, like I went off in a different direction. They just know that what they say is true, regardless of the source. I'm like, Hey, there's this book, a scientific book written by doctors and professors and people in the field. And they're like, Yeah, that's liberal hippie nonsense, so shut up. And then I get pissed off because I'm like, no, this is a fact. And then we just sort of spiral downward from there. But the thing is, like, we've learned to compile this list of conversation topics that we know we can't safely navigate. So we just avoid them, just flat out avoid them. Anywho, several years later, I'm driving our father to my older brother's place for Christmas Eve. My older brother lives an hour and a half outside the city of Chicago. He's out in rural duck butter nowhere. And part of the drive is my dad and I having an entire dialogue about which conversation pieces we ought to avoid, you know, the the list. We're basically just going over the list. And my dad is like, Remember, you can't bring up that Shaun of the Dead stuff, or, you know, don't poke fun of your brother's Mad Max scenarios, no matter how stupid they sound. All right, all right, all right. So, one of the things we prepare as well is our tactics in order to, like, derail any dialogue that may be headed towards something hazardous. So, one of our newest maneuvers that we've been fortunate enough to acquire are my nephews so we got these four-year-old toddlers and anytime somebody starts talking about something that could be like toxic and lead to some kind of calamity we just draw attention to the kids so we got our list and we got our tactics and we are ready to go okay so we go into the house and we sit down and we start having a good time and this is turning into one of the best christmas eves that we've had in years we're drinking and we're relaxed and we're just chilling it's a great time And my sister-in-law starts to complain about how hard it is to shop for me for Christmas, birthdays, that kind of thing. And it's true, because yeah, if I see something that I like, I buy it, okay? Or I save up the money and I get it for myself. And as she's complaining about this, my brother goes, you know, actually, I think he's got the right idea. And I said, what makes you say that? And he goes, well, this year, you know, I saw something. I knew nobody was gonna get it for me, so I got it for myself. And I said, hey, man, that's great. You know, if you got the money for it and you can do it, treat yourself. What did you get? And he goes, I got myself an AK-47. The look on my dad's face is just priceless. Okay, we are a gun family, all right? We grew up with weapons, firearms in the house. I've shot every kind of weapon that you can legally get your hands on. And I enjoy doing it, too. But here's the thing with our dad, his personal line in the sand is assault rifles. So when my brother says, I bought an AK-47, dad's reaction is just, what in God's name possessed you to waste money on an AK-47? And my brother just looks at him and goes, well, I wanted one. Also, when the zombie apocalypse happens and he just starts explaining his plan, and I'm just at the other side of the room just going like, Oh, God damn it! do not start talking about the zombie apocalypse. Because in a matter of seconds, I know we're just going to start hopscotching down the line of landmines. And he just won't shut up. He just won't shut up going off about this, how he needs... This assault rifle added to his collection and he goes over to his gun safe, this giant iron cabinet, and he cracks this thing open and just starts pulling out all the firearms and explaining why they're necessary to fortify the house. So he's got the AK-47, he's got an AR-15, he lays out two shotguns, he's got three hunting rifles. He's never been hunting a day in his life. He's got two 45 caliber automatics. He's got an array of pistols. He's got a machine to make his own bullets. And all of this stuff is necessary in order to defend the house during an apocalyptic scenario that is never going to happen. And at first, I'm like, well, I'm just gonna let Dad lay into him. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm just gonna let this go. I don't see the point in fighting. Because as the time has gone by, I've sort of started to realize that like, there's no point to these arguments. Nobody's changing their mind. Nobody's gonna get their mind changed. We're just fighting. We're just a fiery group of people that just loves to argue. So what's the point, you know? And so I'm like, I'm just gonna leave this to him and dad. I'm gonna stay out of this and just drink my beer. But dad is starting to get intrigued by some of the guns. Now he's playing with two of the 45s and they're all giggling and laughing. I'm like, oh my God, three drunk idiots are playing with guns right now. And then my sister-in-law looks over at me, and she can tell that I'm visibly uncomfortable. And she points the AR-15 at me. And she goes, where's your gun control argument now? And I put up my hands. And I'm like, hey, look, you guys seem to be under the impression that I have a much more intense gun control position than I actually do. And my brother just goes, yeah, well, you did vote for Obama twice. And I'm like, look, buddy, all I think is that a person should have to be able to pass a background check before they get access to a gun that can kill 50 people in three seconds. My dad turns in his seat, dual wielding 45 automatics, points both of them at me and goes, that sounds like some liberal hippie bullshit to me. And my brother starts laughing and he goes, it is, and points the AK at me. And my sister-in-law starts laughing and making gun noises. And sitting before me is my family as firing squad, joking about how they're going to start shooting and make me dance. If you're familiar with that concept, where like you shoot at the ground and make somebody like jump around, dodging the bullets. Because they're under this impression that I'm like some kind of like super hippie gun stealing nut job. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm going to do in this situation. All I can think to myself is, I really hope there isn't accidentally one bullet still in the chamber of one of these guns. So, I'm just sitting there. I don't know what to do. I'm getting a little bit spooked. More and more. It's just an, an intensifying anxiety as things are going by. And then all of a sudden, I look down and I see... One of my nephews is playing on the floor with a fire truck that I've given him. So I reach down and I pick him up. And I hoist him up and I'm holding him between me and the rest of the family. And they just start freaking the fuck out. My brother's just like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, what? What are you worried about? It's not like the gun is loaded. No, no, what are you doing? That's not right. You can't bring a kid into this situation. I'm like, what's the situation, dude? The gun's not loaded. It's not like you're going to shoot me. And then my brother just goes, all right, okay, all right. He's being a jerk. Let's put the guns away now. And he starts gathering up the weapons and putting them back in the safe. And I kind of sit down, and I'm just sort of watching them. And they're all starting to get pissed off because, like, apparently I ruined <laughs> the fun that they were having. And, like, I'm the asshole in this equation now. So I just sit down, and I'm just like... I don't know if I've won the argument, or if I've just alienated myself from them further, but at the same time, all I wanted them to do was to stop pointing guns at me. So as I sat there, continuing to hold my nephew as a human shield, I just looked at everybody and I said, so uh, AK-47s are going on the list.
4: There's carts everywhere, there's blood on the door I just wanna buy some snacks and get back home But these ghouls are trying to eat my bones When I finally get home I turn on the TV The dead on the evening news is all I can see So I pop in a movie and I try to relax Listen to me while I tell you some facts zombie apocalypse is messing up my week The internet is always down, can't update the Twitter stream The zombie apocalypse, it wouldn't be so bad these zombies hadn't bitten my mom and dad i decapitated them and now they buried him back
0: that is all for this week's episode folks this is kirby crackle behind me now you know i'm not a big fan of uh, heavy metal so of the many songs called zombie apocalypse i was glad that one did not sound like all the rest and before Kirby Crackle, we heard from Jay Rohr, who you can find at his website. Lots of different kinds of writing and his band Beer Finger are at honestyisnotcontagious.com. Hey, don't forget, the next Risk Live show is at Caveat in New York City on February 17th. See it live in person there or you can watch the live stream and you can get your tickets for either at risk-show.com/tour Folks, don't forget, we would like to create a sort of social event for risk fans in or around New York City sometime in 2022. So if you're one of those folks, email me at Kevin at risk showcom and I'll put you on a list of folks to contact when we do that. And did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? Right now I am coaching someone on their really spectacularly fascinating solo show. And I really do find that one-on-one training is some of the most fun work that I do. It's very inspiring and keeps me going. You can find me for all of that at KevinAllison.com. And don't forget to look us up on our socials. Risk is at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at TheKevinAllison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
4: It's getting kind of long out here by myself. The food's running low, there's dust on the shelf, but at least I have the voices arguing in my head, which is much better than being undead. It's very possible and probable we have the
0: antidote, okay? And the antidote is even for those that have been vaccinated. And and, and the research he's already sent me just blew me away. And I've been practicing this for 20 years. The antidote that we've seen now, and we have tons and tons of research, is urine therapy. And I know to a lot of you, this sounds crazy. We've got research after research, documented, peer reviewed, published papers on urine. We do, we have this, okay? And what he has right now is all antidotal.
1: Mouth now, now, drink urine. I'm pissing I'm not a medical doctor,
4: I'm not
0: telling anybody to drink their own urine, but I drink my own urine, and I've done drink my own urine for the last 23 years, and I'm still
2: alive.